0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. And while you're doing that, I just have to note how very grateful I am this morning. My head's still a little bit on a swivel trying to figure out where everything is. I've been back in town for less than 24 hours. Family was away on a little bit of vacation, but something about the moment, choir, that you made it to the chancel. And I heard y'all singing our, our opening hymn, something about your voices. I just felt everything that had been knotted up inside my heart say, ah, all is well. I am at home. I'm in the house of the Lord. Where else could I be? Thank you for drawing me into worship. I'm very grateful for a little bit different wording in the Apostles' Creed. It still counts, okay? You look in your hymnal, page 880 and 8 or sorry 882 right alongside 881 that we usually say i'm grateful for a little bit of stumbling and stuttering through it if that's what it takes for us to pay attention to the words all over again they can become so rote i'm grateful for the voices of children who help us discover profound truths in the simplest phrases such as god is with me why should i be afraid We'll be talking about some of the simple and most enduring truths of our faith over these next few weeks to the season of Lent. We'll be talking about words that are very familiar, but have more meaning in them than we guessed. And to do so, we get to hear from the Apostle Paul as he preached to a group of people who had never heard any of these words about Jesus before. He preached to them in the open air public marketplace and gathering places One of the great capitals of Western civilization, the city of Athens, Greece. We get to hear his words to the Athenians and hear them as if they are words to us today. From the book of Acts, chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that you are in every way religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. It said, quote, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, them, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one person, he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far off from any of us. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising that one from the dead. And when the crowd heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we'd like to hear you again on this subject. And after that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I wonder how it feels for you when you discover something that you should have known a long time ago. Like maybe that there are a few extra words that can be included in the Apostles' Creed. Personally, I hate that feeling. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. You know, perhaps you're you're driving to work or a golf course or a favorite spot around town, but this time you're riding with a friend and it turns out they know a little bit shorter way to get there on the same road you've driven for years. I hate that feeling. I hate feeling like, oh, I should have known that. If I've been... Missing out all this time. I remember once I was in a conversation with my friend, Jim Buckley. Jim and I served on the same volunteer board for years and years and years. And, and early on in getting to know him, I knew him well enough to know him by name, to call him by sight, to exchange a few conversations, to be able to call him friend. I was in a conversation with my friend, Jim. And when he walked away, another of our friends said, isn't it so cool to know a guy who's in the Astronaut Hall of Fame? And I said, What? I've known this guy almost a year now. We've talked more than a dozen times. He's never brought it up. I never thought to ask the question that would allow him to say that he is a Hall of Fame astronaut. There are so many questions I could have asked. He's a very humble man. That's how humble he is. If I was in the Astronaut Hall of Fame, we would not get through an initial introduction without you knowing it. I promise. And I should have been delighted. And eventually I was. But in the moment, I was furious with myself. How could I not know that? How could somebody else know that before me? I hate feeling like I I didn't know what I should have known. Like I've just learned what I should have learned a long time ago. Maybe you know that feeling in your job. You come across a skill or a trick or some tool of the trade and I say I should have done this years ago. Maybe you know that feeling as a parent. Maybe you know that feeling as a kid and you know it all too often. You've heard all too often about what you should have known a long time ago. It's so frustrating that you're tempted to not know anything new ever again. There's something uniquely difficult about learning what it feels like we should have known. And I wonder why. I wonder why it feels that way. Because another way of thinking about learning what we should have known a long time ago is to simply say, that's what discovery is. Discovery is the word that we have for what it means to learn something that has always been true. It's a discovery. It should be exciting. Do you think that folks were embarrassed when Isaac Newton discovered the laws of gravity? I mean, it's not like apples just started falling off of trees when Isaac Newton was born. And Isaac Newton's grandfather threw an apple in the air it fell to the ground. That had always been true. Every single time. It's just that Isaac Newton discovered the words and the math to describe more honestly and accurately what everyone knew. And that's the difference between invention and discovery. Isaac Newton did not invent gravity. But he did discover it. As Christians... We should be excited about discovery because we don't get to invent anything about God. Whenever we talk about God, we insist we are talking about the one who is the same today as he was before and will be forever. Everything that we learn about God is something that has always been true. Everything we discover is something that God wanted us to know yesterday or the year before or possibly a thousand years ago. It's just that we're a little slow on the uptake sometimes. Over the next several weeks, we are going to work our way through some of the most fundamental and non-negotiable truths of the Christian faith. If you've ever said the Apostles' Creed, you'll be very familiar with all the language that we are going to use over these next several weeks. But I believe there is still something more for every one of you to discover. And today I especially hope that you'll be willing to discover that when you call God Almighty. There is more power and more meaning in that than most of us have ever cared to discover. And that's okay, by the way. It puts us in good company. Puts us in the same place as the Apostle Paul, and also in the same place as the people of Athens, to whom he preached in this passage we just heard. Some of y'all remember the Apostle Paul wasn't always Paul. He, he used to be Saul. And when he was Saul, he was the A number one, A plus Top of the line, best you could find, enforcer of persecution against the very first Christians. Saul was a legitimate religious expert, a legal expert. He knew the Jewish law like almost no one else. And when Saul finally discovered that the Jesus he had heard about, that he had been trying to root out, of Jerusalem and Damascus, when he heard that this name of Jesus was the name of the risen Lord and Messiah, when he discovered that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that Saul had learned, at first it was one of the worst feelings in the world. When Saul discovered what he could have known a long time ago, how wrong and how passionately wrong he had been, it was so life-altering he wasn't the same anymore. He changed his name to Paul. He dedicated his life to telling others the good news that he had denied for so long. That's how he came to Athens, which was a city of experts. Religious experts, philosophical experts, legal experts, city of Athens gave the world Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And even here in Acts 17, 300 years after those great lights of philosophy, Athens was still revered around the world as the birthplace of wisdom. The Greeks were the first people to conquer the known world, at least as they knew it. The Greek language was the first universal language. Even now, 300 years later, when the Romans are running the show, the Romans are still speaking Greek. Because that's what everyone knows. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Romans still revere the Greeks, and the Athenians in particular are celebrated as the discoverers of some of the fundamental and universal laws of human nature. If you want to know what it means to live the good life, to be a complete person, to master yourself and prosper in this life. You look to Athens. But when Paul came to Athens, he was not impressed by the depth of the breadth of the knowledge that surrounded him. The book of Acts tells us that he listened to the Epicureans, and he listened to the Stoics, and he listened to the Hebrew scholars, and he thought to himself, I know something they should know. So Paul starts by preaching to his own folks to the other Jewish leaders and scholars in the synagogues, and then some people catch wind of what he's saying, and they call him out into the Areopagus, the big public meeting place of Athens, the, the gathering of the council of the experts of the experts, the most learned scholars in the entire city. If You go to Athens today, you can find a hill called the Areopagus. It means the hill of Mars, the Greek god of war. We don't know if Paul was actually standing on that hill. We think that by this time, The councils of Athens were simply named for the place where they'd begun. Now they'd grown so large that they needed to meet somewhere else. You know that it was fully in public, in front of a large crowd, that Paul begins to share what he knows. The book of Acts cares a lot more about who he was talking to and what he said than about exactly where he said it. And If you pay attention to what Paul told the wisest people in the world, you'll discover something not only about who God is, but who God made us to be. So let's walk through very quickly what Paul says it means to know not just God's, but the God. First thing we discover from Paul is that everybody worships. Everybody worships something. And the Athenians knew that as well as anybody. Listen to what Paul's saying. Paul tells them, he says, You are very religious. You worship all these different idols. You even know that there's something you don't know. He says, When I walked around your city, I saw an altar that was labeled the altar to the unknown God. And look, you know this too. If you're honest, you know that worship is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. It's just that nowadays we don't usually call it worship, <laughs> we call it fandom, we call it cheering. Call it fame. You know, in English, we used to just have one word that included all these different things. If you read the old tales of King Arthur, you won't hear about the fans or the cheering. You will hear that the thing that all the great quests of the Knights of the Round Table and all the old medieval tournaments and jousts were about, their sole purpose was that for those who were competing to, quote, win worship. They were there to get acclaim, fame adoration, and they only had one word for it. They called it worship. I think we were wiser when we didn't have all these other words for worship. I think we invented words like fandom and fame so that we could lie to ourselves and pretend that what we do at a football game or a concert or when we post all those exclamation points in that fanatical Facebook post about whatever, or when we stand with our hand over our heart, we feel a little queasy admitting that all these things are acts of worship. But the Athenians knew better. The first people to conquer the world understood that in every culture, there is a fundamental human need to be caught up in something larger than yourself. Their Olympic Games were acts of worship their ruling council began in places of worship the wise people in the world knew that the good life must be about something more than yourself something bigger than yourself and when paul spoke to them his first insight was not to try and squash that in them tell them you're doing it all wrong he says no the problem is not your enthusiasm the problem is you're not enthusiastic enough problem is you quit seeking you settled He says the problem is you quit wondering, you quit asking, you quit caring about the discovery that comes through worship. He says you relegated what you don't know to a little space over there to the side. You made an altar to an unknown God and you never learned that this unknown God isn't just one thing to be worshiped alongside all the others. He's the one it all comes from. He's the source of all worship, the one that all worship truly belongs to. All these things point to him the one who made it all and holds it all together. Everybody worships something. And that is great and that is worthy and that is what we were made for. But the question the Athenians had quit asking, the question you've got to ask when you want to know what's non-negotiable in this life is this, are you giving your highest worship to your highest purpose? If you want to know what it means to worship God Almighty. You can't just worship that God alongside all the other loyalties in your life. You have to ask of all those loyalties, what does this have to do with God? You can't relegate God to the unknown. You have to ask, what do all these things tell me about God? How does this honor God? Or has it come to to just stand alongside God in my life. The thing that sets God apart from all the other things that we worship, Paul goes on to say, is that God doesn't need you. Hear it again because it sounds harsh, but it turns out to be the best news in the world. God doesn't need you. You don't want to hear that from me then hear it from Paul. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He does not need it. He gives it. In case you think I'm cherry-picking verses, you should know that this biblical truth It's one of the oldest teachings of the church. Most ancient understandings of what we mean when we say that God is almighty. The early Christians and great medieval scholars called it the doctrine of aseity. But you don't need a fancy word. You just need to know God doesn't need you. And if it's any comfort to you, he doesn't need me either. That's hard for some of us to accept. Because we like to be needed. There's a sense of pride that comes in being needed. And if we're honest, there's a sense of power too. Somewhere in this room, there's a parent who is so proud that their grown-up child no longer needs them. But that same parent is a little wistful for, when the, for the days when their child would come running. They don't call as often, visit as often, now that they don't need you quite the same way. It could be worse. I've known the kind of parent and the kind of spouse, even the kind of friend who did everything possible to make sure that their loved ones would always need them, who manipulated or withheld from a child or a spouse or a parent, whatever they knew would keep that person coming back to them, would keep them from ever trusting themselves. And I've known the terrible fear that some people all, only want you around when they need you you've known that fear right you've had that friend once right the one you admired the one you loved hanging out with the one who invited you to everything but only reached out to you when they needed something maybe you had the boss who gave you all the attention and loyalty in the world as long as you made them look good but then something slipped and they had no use for you maybe it was the coach who had a perfect spot for you on the team Right up until someone came along who was just a fraction quicker or an inch taller. And if you've known that fear, then you know why it's good news. God has never needed you. If God has never needed you, that means the only reason God ever pursued you. Simply because God wanted you. Because God loved you. That's it. There's no desperation in God. God is not trying to use you to fill some sort of hole in their heart. God only ever loved you because God does. It's always been pure love and desire. When you discover that God is almighty, you discover God doesn't need anything. And that's how you discover god doesn't need you and that's how you discover that you are simply loved he wants to know you and be known and everything else is land, yeah that's what paul was offering the greeks the chance to know god almighty When Paul defined the omnipotence of God, he said, first, it means that God is the true object of all worship. And it also means that God loves us without condition because God pursues us without necessity. And then finally said, Paul said to the Athenians that what makes God almighty is that God gets what God wants in the end. Or to put it another way, God is almighty because God is in the resurrection business. That's the closing line. For Paul's speech at the Areopagus, to the most learned leaders in the most learned city in the world, this is what he said that made them flip their wigs. He said, a day has been set when he will judge the world with justice by the one he has appointed. And he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They didn't want to be told they had something to learn. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. The resurrection of the dead was the proof of what had always been true. That God gets what God wants in the end. That doesn't mean that everything happens for a reason. We say that God is almighty. That does not mean that God is micromanaging the smallest or even some of the biggest events in our lives. There's a lot of stuff in this world that is just plain evil. It is wrong. And by definition, what is evil is not the will of God. There's plenty of pain in this world that comes from our will, from the way we use and abuse the freedom God gives us. And God allows us this freedom because God is unwilling to reduce us to mindless robots or simply use us. God wants you to love him as God loves you, not under compulsion, but simply for the joy of doing so. And until each of you loves God like that, there will be sin and pain in the world, not just you, not just me, but all the world. But one day, God will get what God wants. One day all the injustice of the world, all the unfairness will be brought to light right alongside all the best stuff, and we'll discover what God really wanted all along. He will judge the world with justice. He will say, this is what should be, and this is not. And one day God will get what God wants. And if you're thinking, how can that possibly make up for what's happening here and now? What good is one day to the person who suffers or hurts or mourns today? Paul has an answer for that. He says, not only the pain will be judged, but that it will be undone. That death will begin to work in reverse. That God won't just get what God wants, but God will get what God always wanted. That's what makes God almighty. His defeats are temporary. His victory is eternal. And God gets what God wants in the end. And isn't it incredible that the God who needs nothing, who always gets what he wants, has chosen to train the unfathomable power of his desire on you. God gets what God wants and God wants you. Not the best of you, not the worst of you. Not the you that you present to the world or the bit that's left over when you've finished worshiping your job or your people or your idols or your own self-image. God sees all that and God even loves you for that. But God wants more for you. God loves all the other stuff in the same way that Paul loved the philosophy and the religion of the Athenians. It's only good if it's the starting point for discovering so much more. God brought all these good things in the world to inspire you to seek what is best so that you would, as Paul says, reach out for him and find him and find that he has never been far from any of us so today, as we begin to think and pray about what is non-negotiable in the Christian faith, if we know anything about God, it is that God is almighty. I wonder what's non-negotiable in your life. Have you tried to put God over to the side? Have you put him on an altar you rarely visit? Have you been content with an unknown God, content to say almighty without bothering to learn what it means? Today is the day to choose something different. To do so freely and discover what your freedom is for. The nudge you feel, the feeling that says you should have thought of all this a long time ago, you should have surrendered this all a long time ago, that's the power of the Almighty God at work in you. You can know Him by experience. And in His presence, you can discover that alongside Him, the worst thing never gets the last word.